This morning, I think we want to examine this paradox of contentment and craving and try to kind of infuse that with what is the scripture really telling us about this and how do we live into it well? And before we go any further, let me first acknowledge this, that this talk will not satisfy everybody. It never does. It can't. No talk can meet the expectations. It's impossible to cover every one of your individual scenarios and every one of your challenges and questions um, with the limited time we have and the direction we're going this morning. But the question I will not be able to fully answer, but we'll give some time and attention to, is um, a question I think we ask in our more honest moments. And it's this question. What about legitimate cravings? What about unfulfilled desires and unmet expectations? Like, how do I live in the paradox of contentment and craving and do that when I'm actually craving a thing or an experience or a relationship that's actually legitimate? Like, that's good, that's healthy, that we should want. What do you do when those things go unsolved? Because I think life hands us those all the time, right? We're always faced with that. Let me give you some examples. Uh, so God says, do not be anxious about anything and that he'll supply all our needs. And yet some of us in here are wrestling with the fact that it doesn't feel like that's the case. That we're struggling with paying our bills or finding a good job or moving ahead in career. Having ends be met or providing for ourselves or our families. And so we feel that tension. Others of us. Uh, say that, you know, the scripture, God says, marriage is to be held in honor, and I want a life partner, and I've wanted one for a long time, and yet I feel like that need is going unmet, and don't you want a good thing for me, God? And it feels like there's deep disappointment. Others would say, well, I have a marriage, but what I want is a little bit better of a marriage. I'm committed, and I'm all in, but sometimes it feels like my partner is less engaged passive, doesn't really care, uh, or maybe there's just a tension in the marriage. And isn't it okay to want a better marriage? Isn't that a legitimate thing that we should crave? Or we've been married for a while, and God says that children are a blessing, and yet my partner and I are experiencing infertility, miscarriage, we're struggling with having a child, and so there's this tension, like, God, you said this is a blessing, but this isn't a blessing it seems that we've been given. And what do we do with that pain and that hurt? Or others are wanting a healthy life. They assumed kind of they would, but the sickness they have, like disability or a challenge is debilitating. It's frustrating. It's hard. Doesn't God want us to be healthy? And the list can go on and on, right? Relationships we crave, struggles that our kids are having that we're like, man, how do I help my kid through this difficult and challenging time of life? And there doesn't seem to be answers, and there's anxiety, and there's fear, and all of that builds, right? And I would suggest that we kind of all toggle back and forth between contentment and craving desiring something, seeing needs go unmet. And so what do we do with that tension? How do we live well in that space between 
contentment and craving. And before we look at a passage of scripture that I hope kind of speaks into that a little bit, I want to just take a moment and talk about one outlier to what I'm about to say. And that outlier is centered around the idea of justice. I'm not sure that we are ever supposed to be in a place where we get to just be content and happy with injustice. I'm sure many of you by now are aware of the horrific tragedy in Buffalo, New York. If you aren't, uh, an 18-year-old man traveled um, to an intentionally African-American community yesterday and um, live-streamed the hate crime where he went into a grocery store and killed 10 people and left others wounded. It was a racially motivated hate crime, a killing. And um, as you know, those are on their eyes in our nation and on our eyes around the world. Uh, just reflecting back, Charleston Church 2015, the bombing of an African-American church. Pittsburgh, October 2018, the synagogue shooting 2019, a mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, Walmart, targeting Latino community. In San Diego in 2019, targeting Jewish and Muslim communities. It obviously goes without saying that we as a community condemn all of that violence, the hatred, and the racial motivated hate crimes. And no words that I can say now can adequately address the pain that is felt by those communities and the tragedy of lives that are being shattered as we speak. But I think a heart of justice should always leave us discontent. A heart of justice should always have us craving more. And apathy on our part is not an option. We may want it to be but we are to constantly crave justice. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are to strive for shalom, complete fullness and wholeness and beauty and wellness for everyone. And we are to fight for this justice, not just out there and not just in the news and not just through social media, but in very real, tangible ways. I'm convinced that if it doesn't travel that justice and that heart doesn't travel from Buffalo or Charleston or Minneapolis or San Diego and end up here in Spokane, then we've probably missed the point, right? It should translate like Jesus's incarnation to presence and proximity. It has to be here in this space with us. And so that means it should motivate us to come alongside of our brothers and sisters who are experiencing poverty and homelessness in our city. It should motivate us to come alongside brothers and sisters experiencing sexism and racial inequality and homophobia and any form of injustice. And we, I believe, have to acknowledge that both individually and corporately, this is not something we can just overlook, pretend, turn a blind eye to, and say it doesn't matter. Because it absolutely matters for people in our city. And we are called to be people of reconciliation, to bring hope and healing, to bring the love of Christ. That is our calling. So there's no paradox in that part. 
But for the rest of life, that tension of unmet expectations exists, and you see it all throughout the scriptures. In people like Elijah and Rachel and Sarah and Jesus. The one I want to focus on this morning is Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has what's described as a thorn in the flesh. It's a Well, there's a lot of speculation as to what it really is. A lot is unknown. Uh, Some consider it an ailment. Uh, There's talk about it being an eye disease that Paul had, where he begins to become more and more blind and uh, is unable to do what he did before, and that's something that he is desiring for that not to be the case. Others suggest that the thorn is a person. Um, when I was younger, I didn't think that was like, I'm like, how is that a person a thorn? Oh, people can be thorns for sure. (laughs) I've got one thing I've learned over time and that person just won't go away and seems to keep doing the same thing again and again, and you can't escape it. Uh, and I could see how that could absolutely be the thing. Uh, others suggest that it's money that it's tied to uh, him being able or unable to provide for himself as he travels and tries to share the gospel. I think one of the beauties of this particular passage is that we don't know, and that actually makes it better that we don't. Because you can't just be like, well, I mean, Paul had an eye thing, and I don't have an eye thing, so I don't need to. No. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is he was experiencing can relate to what it is we are experiencing. And that thorn in the flesh is an experience that may speak to ours. And that's my hope this morning. I'm going to just walk through what I think are some ideas that the the text tells us on how we might be able to address this paradox sitting between contentment and coveting or uh, craving something. And the first idea is this idea of lament. So in the text, 2 Corinthians 12, 18, it says this, or 12, eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times I pleaded. So Paul's describing this anguish that he's in, this desire to get rid of something. And it sounds kind of like awkward at the beginning because he's like, well, three whole times I prayed about this thing. Um, let me explain what I think that means. Uh, on top of just him every day, probably praying and crying about it and wanting something different. The idea behind it is that on three separate occasions, he probably said it about kind of like on a little retreat, went away, prayed, fasted, cried, sought God, and then no answer. Or the answer was like, nope, you're stuck. Stuck with the eye ailment, stuck with that person, stuck with no money, stuck with whatever, okay? Um, And so Paul is grieving We talked about grieving not too long ago in this Paradox series. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it if you didn't. But Paul is grieving about something that he has either lost, it's been taken from him, or something like we often do, or we grieve a thing we have wanted but never received. And what Paul does right at the start of this is he laments, he describes, declares that there is this moment where he vocalizes his sorrow. And lament is a thing that all of us are not only just like called to do, but it is throughout the scriptures, it is so obvious that lament is a part of our story. 
And lament is not just despair. It's not just crying out into a void. It is crying out to God and saying the way things are is not the way I desire them to be. That I'm deeply disturbed by the way things are. And I think one of the challenges with us living in the world in which we live is that we have to wake up to the realization that there are some laments we will lament for life and will never be solved on this side of eternity. Martin Luther King Jr. in talking about that says this, we come to the point of seeing that no matter how long we pray for them sometimes and no matter how long we cry out for a solution to our problems, no matter how much we desire it, we don't get the answer. The only answer we get is a fading echo of our desperate cry, of our lonely cry. So we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that the cup would be removed from him, but he has to drink it with all its bitterness and all its pain. We find Paul praying that the thorn would be removed from his flesh, but it is never removed, and he is forced to go all the way to the grave with it. This is the story of life. In so many instances, it becomes the arena of unrealized dreams and unfulfilled hopes, frustration with no immediate solution in the environment. And so we have to recognize that these unfulfilled longings may exist this side of heaven. And we don't like that tension. I know I don't. We don't like the not enoughness, the complexity, the edge of uncertainty. But the truth is we may never find, in some of our cases, complete and full satisfaction in this life. There will always be a gap, an ache, an unmet need. And Paul models for us lamenting that, starting with lament. The second is to examine. And the text then goes on to say, uh, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I mean, that's what he desired, right? There's this thing that I have I don't want, and I want it to be done with. Or in maybe your case, there's the thing I really want, and I still don't have it, and I long for it. Paul is examining that craving. I think it is helpful for us to name it, to acknowledge it. Because it doesn't matter if it's this sickness, if it's career, if it's parenting, if it's relationships, if it's sexuality, the assumption in our culture is that if we live with unmet expectations, it is an insufferable misery that must be resolved as quickly as possible. Ronald Rauhheiser makes this statement, we are convinced that all lack, all tension, unfulfilled yearning is tragic. It's almost as if our culture and Paul in this case is saying, look, if it isn't met, then something's desperately wrong. But I think craving often points us to something deeper. It's pointing us to another thing that we lack. And often our expectations for something are connected to this strong belief that if things go right in the world, really, that means I will have happiness. That it's a must. It's a guarantee. But it's often in those unmet expectations that the yearning for something deeper drives us to the infinite. West makes this statement. We are rarely presented with an authentically fulfilling trajectory for our desires. 
If we are created for infinite satisfaction, we really only have three choices about what to do with the desire in this life. We will, either, we will become either a stoic, an addict, or a mystic. The stoic squelches desire out of fear, while the addict seems to satisfy his desire for infinity with finite things, which of course can't satisfy. That's why the addict wants more and more and more. The mystic, on the other hand, in the Christian sense of the term, is the one who is learning how to direct his desire for infinity toward infinity. It is us taking, examining the craving and saying, what really in this is driving me toward God? What in this is driving me to the infinite, driving me toward that which is beyond what I'm currently experiencing? Which takes us to the third thing that I think Paul experiences here, and that is a call to listen to the message of God. Richard Rohr makes this statement, in terms of soul work, we dare not get rid of the pain before we have learned what it has to teach us. I love that quote. I hate that quote, right? Are you with me? Because that's what we want is just immediately get rid of it, like be done with it. But I think God always has a message linked to the thorn. Whatever is that thing that's the thorn, there's always a message attached to it. For Paul, it was this message. But he, being God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There is a message for every tension unfulfilled desire, unmet expectation. There's a question my spiritual director asks me, and I feel like it's, he could probably put it on play, like repeat and just keep hitting the button. But he always asks, <clears throat> where is God in this? So I'll be sitting with him and I'll be like, well, and then this, and then this is what I'm experiencing, this is what I'm feeling. And, Great. Where is God in this? Oh, yeah. It's what we need to think about, right? And he just keeps bringing it up again and again and again. Where is Christ in this? Where is the Holy Spirit in this? See, this passage is pointing what I think is also the true message of the gospel. That when we are weak, God is sufficient. When we are lacking, he supplies we're not the ones striving. We're not the ones trying to perform and please and do all these gymnastics for God so that the favor of God rests on us. No, the favor's already there. It's accepted. It's a gift that's been granted. And we just have to listen to the message of God and be reminded of his sufficiency. Which brings us to the next idea. Paul starts to model what it means to let go or to relinquish control. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What Paul does is he shifts his tone. He goes from lamenting to, in a very shocking way, he goes to boasting. He's boasting about something. And what he's boasting about is this like idea of letting go, of saying, man, I am going to relinquish 
this thing. Because it's often the thing that we desire the most that we want to hold on to so tightly that we end up crushing it. We want to hold on so tightly that we end up not letting it breathe, not giving life to it. There are so many illustrations, even in my own life, about this right now where I want so bad to hold on to something. And the thing I have to do is let go. Richard Rohr goes on to say this, answers are the way out. But that is not what we're here for. When we look at the questions, we look for the opening to transformation. Fixing something doesn't usually transform us. We try to change events in order to avoid changing ourselves. We avoid God who works in the darkness where we are not in control. Maybe that is the secret, relinquishing control. We must learn to stay with the pain of life without answers, without conclusions, and some days without meaning. That is the path, the perilous dark path of true prayer. So Paul shifts to letting go. He shifts to boasting about weakness. He shifts to embracing the unfulfilled. But he doesn't stop there. He begins to redirect those expectations toward hope. The text goes on to say this, for the sake of Christ then. So he's reminding himself, and he's reminding all of the readers that these things he's talking about, for the sake of Christ, lead us to different conclusions. And the best way I think to describe that is this idea of hope. Paul breathes into this experience hope. So for many of us, hope can be defined as a peaceful or gentle desire or longing. When Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about love, he talks about love hoping all things. Love and hope are intimately connected. But see, what love doesn't do is it does not expect. Does not expect. So what we have to do is shift from expectation to hope because expectations limit love. Expectations put on us rigid, self-described, man-made rules, right? Expectations put chains on other people. They bind other people to what we believe about them or what we expect them to do for us or for someone else. Expectations and love are incompatible. Incompatible. And this is where we have to reframe expectation to hope because hope implies some level of acceptance a widening of the margin for error. And what I mean by that is, I hope my life goes this way, but I realize it may not. I realize it may not. And what unmet expectations do is they often lead to anger, to resentment, to pain. But unfulfilled hope takes a gentler path. It leads to grief, leads to disappointment, but it is far less destructive to us and to others. 
It releases the pressure valve, so to speak. It also gives us the ability to not victimize ourselves or others. Gives us the ability not to traumatize ourselves or others because we don't have expectations. By removing those, we give space for hope and love. Final idea from the text is this. Paul goes on to say, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. But he says, I'm content. I have a little phrase, this is it. So for um, 90 plus, it's a little soccer organization that teaches character and leadership to kids. I know many of you know about it. 90 plus has a little phrase with the students. Each uh, time we get together with them, there's always a character or leadership lesson. One of those leadership lessons is the idea that this is it. And what that means is, this is the only moment that matters because it's the only moment you have right now. So what do you have going on? This is it. This is it. It's all you got right now. So that means you're not like worried about what happened before or what your day at school was like or what was going on because that's the past. This is it. This is the moment, right? Also, it doesn't mean like you're worried about what's coming or what's next or what might be on the horizon or what you can't control. It's okay because this is it. We're in this moment right now. And that doesn't mean as much to a six-year-old as it does maybe to you or I, but you got to start somewhere, right? You got to begin to build into all of us this idea that the only moment you actually have, the only moment you have any say over is this one. It's the only one. Chesterton says, true contentment is a real and even active virtue. It is the power of getting out of any situation all there is in it. Let me say that last part. It is the power of getting out of any situation all there is in it. And what Paul says is, I am content. I'm getting everything out of everything I'm experiencing. Because that's what I can control. Um, I was in a cafe yesterday, and I was sitting there, and um, this family walks in. This guy holding a kid kind of on his shoulders, his wife next to him, I'm assuming, and she's got another kid in her arms, and they walk up to the counter, and they order stuff, and then they come, and they sit right next to me. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm just kind of like corner my eye watching, and this little kid is like, hi, and you know, like I'm interacting with him, and they're like, leave the old man alone over there, you know. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, they're doing their thing, and they're having fun as a family, and then all of a sudden, the little, little kid stands up and then just like lifts the table, and mom springs into action, catches like I don't know how she does it. Moms, I don't know how you do most of what you do, but she catches what I think is like three mugs all at the same time, so nothing spills, and dad like grabs a kid, and it's just like a moment of chaos, and then the rest of the time they're in there, they're like 
trying to corral the kids. It's two boys, and they're going bananas. And like, you come back over here. And like, you know, it's just nonstop. And uh, I could tell they were about to leave. And there was everything within me. I wanted to go over without seeming like a creep and just say to either mom or dad, look, enjoy the moment. Enjoy it. Because it goes fast. But in that moment, I don't think they were savoring it. I don't think they were like, my life doesn't get any better than this. I don't think they're thinking it's fun changing the diapers and like cleaning up stuff. And I mean, there was like pieces of food everywhere. I don't think they were like, this is living my best life, right? But man, I knew I would cry. Uh, I was telling Kevin, I have had lots of feels lately. That's how my daughter describes it. And what I do is I try to pass it off and make jokes about getting old when people ask, how are the kids doing? I'm like, oh, I'm getting old. They're, you know, they're getting old. Um, but my daughter is about to graduate from Whitworth in two weeks and move into Boise. And my son, Jack, is like, yeah, I'm not coming home for the summer. And he's going to stay in Seattle. And then Mason uh, is graduating from Shadow Park. And he's off to Seattle this fall. And... And I find myself saying, man. So like the soccer season just ended. Just got to finish coaching. It's amazing. Great season. And I find myself just wanting one more training. Thank you. And this is the only moment you're given, right? The only one. And we can savor it. Or we could be worried about what's coming. Or what's been. We can be striving, craving, desiring, and never satisfied. But I think that paradox between Contentment and craving is wrapped up in what Paul is saying here. It's wrapped up in finding grace. It's wrapped up in knowing he's sufficient. It's wrapped up in experiencing the moment to its fullest. Because that's the only moment you have. We'll end with um, Teresa, Teresa of Avila. As our benediction, she makes this incredible statement. If you want to stand with me, if you're able, that would be fantastic. May today there be peace within. May you trust God that you are exactly where you are meant to be.
May you not forget the infinite possibilities that are born of faith. May you use those gifts that you have received and pass on the love that has been given to you. And may you be content knowing you're a child of God. Let this presence settle into your bones and allow your soul the freedom to sing, dance, praise, and love. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.